Welcome to the Willing Minds podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brady Collard, and I'm joined by my co-host and my best friend, Tyler Stewart. Our favorite thing to do is sit with each other, Bibles open, and a fresh cup of coffee in our hands. So grab your own cup and maybe even a Bible if you want to follow along. We invite you into our conversation. Welcome to the Willing Minds podcast. I'm here with our co-host Tyler Stewart and his brother Devin is joining us. Uh, Devin is in his final semester at Concordia in Austin um, where he is studying uh, biology. Is that correct? Or what's the specific uh, science degree, Devin, that you're doing currently? Yeah, you nailed it. It's biology. Just biology. Okay. Awesome. And then he also uh, recently got accepted into Parker Chiropractor School in Dallas. So we were excited for him uh, with that new journey that he'll start uh, in January. Is that correct as well? That is also correct. You are nailing it. All right. I'm two for two, baby. Let's go. Um, So the, the topic of discussion tonight, Devin kind of approached me and Tyler or... We approached him and just started a dialogue of if we were to to do an episode together, what would be uh, some of the contents of that and what can we bring each of from our respective fields into a dialogue about how do we approach faith and science uh, and do it in a wholesome and honest way um, without prioritizing one over the other um, or feeling like we have to uh, ignore scientific realities or ignore spiritual realities for the sake of the other. Uh, so that's kind of the the hope and the goal for the conversation. And in that, there's going to be some specific topics uh, that we'll get into on uh, maybe some issues that have been controversial in the past, but hopefully we can reconcile some of those things in this episode. So Devin, I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to you. Uh, Why don't you introduce us to uh, where you'd like to start? Absolutely. Let's see. So at Concordia University, he didn't mention, but it's a Lutheran college. So I had to go back to the fiction section and look at all the science books, which was pretty limited. (laughs) Um, But I'd like to first discuss the absolute truth versus relative truth, which diverges from philosophy And that in science, absolute truth is what cannot be studied, but inherently true, such as God and the laws of physics and biology and whatnot. And relative truth is the basis for scientific findings, that testing that is ever changing and continues to change over generations. Um, The main factors. So I want to stop you right there just for a second. Tyler, and I want to hear Tyler, your opinion on this in theology classes and philosophy classes, when we talk about absolute versus relative truth, uh, and specifically from an apologetic standing, we usually hear the scientific or the the atheistic uh, approach, which is usually going to teach science over spirituality, uh, that they would say that absolute truth is the material, uh, is material truth, things that can be discovered by science and that spirituality is relative or uh, maybe even subjective to the individual. And because science cannot discover spirituality, then that's what makes it relative. 
or, or subjective. Uh, would you agree that from our area of study that that's how we would define those things, which is kind of an inverse from what Devin just said? I think it goes more so to what necessitates the divergence. Um, if both fields can make the claim for absolute truth being this ineffable yet um, description that we can participate in and to even think about in the more the ontological sense of, in other words, the the, rea- the study of knowledge, uh, or sorry, more so the reality, not epistemology, but um, and I said it to say that within our field of study, theology demands, and I, I almost am inclined to say that there's more of a moral implication to absolute truths. And especially in our postmodern world, where we seek to deconstruct the existence of mortality and things that are proven true that philosophy and modern philosophy of the, the postmodernists um, dare tread on the very premise Devon set up of the scientific realm, that if relative truth for the scientist is something that we can test through hypothesis, sorry, it's more so test hypothesi or whatever the plural form of that is, hypotheses or hypotheses. Yeah, I got it right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that we can test those and the postmodernist says, okay, well, we can test these um, philosophical absolute truths as relative. What I mean by that, and you can say, uh, I think it's Jacques Derrida that says we need to deconstruct death and bring death to death. And a paraphrase, of course, but um, that principle of modern philosophy in the world that we are entrenched in, and if we're to combat that um, as Christians, and that is postmodern philosophy, not necessarily science, then I think it demands that there is a partnership with the scientific realm as far as what absolute truth can be. Hence, I mean, they make fun of it and they, they call it the, what is it, the, the God particle or anything, the acts of God or any of these um, ineffable things or miracles that happen that we can't explain um, are, are just like the postmodernists like to say, oh, this is the, this is the relative that we can make um, and expound and test and turn it into an absolute relative. And we like to say, well, let's take this um, supposedly absolute and we can make it a spiritual claim about uh, and, and expound in the spiritual and philosophical sense. So I don't think they're necessarily as, juxtaposed as maybe Devin's definition makes it out to be. Um, Although I I, completely understand. I guess what I'm hearing then is that the, the philosophical, uh, the postmodern philosophical approach, which argues against God uh, would say that spiritual, spiritual truth is relative and they would point to the science as being absolute truth when science itself would reverse those definitions and say that things that are undiscoverable are absolute and things that are discoverable are relative. Uh, So it seems like the postmoderns or people who um, support postmodern 
philosophy have got their definitions mixed up and are saying that science does something that it science itself says that it's not intending to do. Well, the second that every supposed or relative truth becomes the reality. And I think that's, that that's what the postmodernist is trying to bring out. Okay. So if scientists define this absolute truth as um, what cannot be studied, and I think as Devin said, but inherently true, such as God and laws, then, or well, presuming moral laws, um, because now they're even trying to deconstruct good and evil and that these are unnecessary. Right. Um, but I think it is important to note that for the scientist, they need absolute truth defined that way. Otherwise, they have nothing to pursue. And that's their, their motivation, I think, is how many things that we know now were, quote unquote, undiscoverable or um, what would be defined 500 years ago as um, relative or sorry, absolute truth. And today is secondhand knowledge. So I, it's, and that tends to um, aid the postmodern philosophy. But I, I would, I would disagree with that. But do you see my point? I think the reason why they define it that way, and I think scientists, and that's why they, the the divergence is a necessary evil in that sense. That it's a divergence because we're both willing to submit as you know those in theology or, or scientists, um, we're both willing to submit that there is an absolute truth, although our differences, there are differences in how we define that granted by God and a faith in God versus we have no idea, but regardless that gives the moral pursuit to figure out and find why it's the same principle as faith seeking understanding. So Devin, I guess the question I want to ask you now is, uh, if science is defining absolute truth as the things that are undiscoverable, um, why, and this is, you know, this is going to be opinion and I'm asking for your insight into this, uh, but why are there so many, uh, you know, so many scientists who come from an atheistic background and say that God does not exist because we cannot discover God? Well, if God's undiscoverable, then that would put him in the realm of absolute truth. So are they just ignoring the plausibility of God um, and saying that, well, that's not likely. And so therefore, I'm not going to believe in him and accept him as an absolute truth, even though I would say he's undiscoverable. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. And there are actually a good number of scientists who are Christians, like Isaac Newton was a strong Christian, and we base a lot of our science, a lot of our laws based on that. Laws, I was more referring to the actual like laws of gravity and whatnot, like kind of physical uh, laws, but moral laws, yeah, that works too. Um, in terms of absolute truth, um, I guess in terms of atheistic people, they would view it as because it can't be studied, because I can't physically or tangibly observe some things that are beyond my own purview or my own scopes, then it must not exist. And then a lot of scientists who actually built the foundations of many, the scientific method as well. um, Yeah. Like that whole process of dealing with what we can study and what we do know 
we say that there has to be a greater meaning behind it. As Christians in the science realm, we have to say there's actual meaning and actual uh, binding of forces to everything. Because, you know, atoms, they hold about 99.99% is just space, not even electrons, protons, neutrons, none of that. Like, what is holding everything together? Like, you can say, in terms of atoms, the bonds. Okay, covalent, ionic, um, hydrogen, whatever. Like, those types of bonds. Okay, but what holds the atom itself together? It's like, okay, well, it must be, like, quarks and the uh, central uh, nucleus, um, which holds the protons and neutrons. It's like, okay, well, what holds that together? They keep on trying to dive deeper and deeper, but what truly holds together and what gives the universe purpose for people. And it's hard in the atheistic to, they'll never find the answer, but for people who believe in the absolute truth of God, what they'll find is that the truth is beyond our scopes of measurements. And we have to have faith. It leaves room and free will to have faith. If we were told everything and we knew everything, like we probably will in heaven, we understood every scientific method, every uh, hypothesis, theory, everything, and we knew every, even the absolute truth, like of God and everything about him, then what room does that leave for free will, um, even though in terms of knowing the truth, for us to act on our own accord and to find out him through science? Okay, so I like what you're saying, and I like that you said that science leaves room for the possibility of God uh, and the possibility of accepting God as absolute truth. And so to bring it uh, to something that me and Tyler have studied in a language that we understand, um, Tyler, it seems to me that Devin is saying that science leaves room for a de jure proposition that God exists. And the scientists who, uh, the atheistic scientists who would reject that are making, jumping from a de jure proposition to a de facto proposition that God could not exist because he's undiscoverable. When Devin is arguing that uh, science leaves room for a de jure possibility of God existing, and that's where we have to operate from. Do you want to define those for those that might be listening? So uh, can you discern that. <laughs> yes. So a day the just typing it in on Google real quickly and hopefully this will allow me to define it clearly. Uh Google says that a de jure argument <clears throat> is according to the rightful entitlement or claim by right. So you are entitled to make a claim uh, to make whatever claim that you are making. Uh, Alvin Plantinga uses language of warranted, that I am warranted in my belief in God because X, Y, and Z. And he'll, uh, if you, what's his book, Tyler? Um, knowledge and Christian Belief. Knowledge and Christian Belief. If you want to go and it's read the that. condensed he, version. Yeah, this is the version you should read. Um but he lays out what a de jure argument is, and then he gives the reasons for making a de jure claim in God. He gives the reasons that if you believe in God, 
for X, Y, and Z reasons, those reasons are enough to warrant, uh, to give you an excuse for believing in God. Uh, Where a de facto argument, let me look at Google again, is an argument that states uh, that the argument that you're making is a fact and that it cannot be disputed. So to say that God exists in the de facto means that no one can be can in their right mind be of the opinion that God does not exist and vice versa to say that God uh, to say that if we're making a de facto argument that God does not exist, no one in their right mind can make the argument that he does. That is a de facto argument and Plantinga in his book, uh, knowledge of God and Christian belief says that two of the biggest, uh, atheistic arguments against God come from Freud and come from Karl Marx. Freud saying that uh, the belief in God is wishful thinking. And then Karl Marx, um, I don't remember the specific argument that he, oh, he said that uh, Karl Marx's argument was that belief in God was a um, kind of a aristocratic a belief that enabled power uh, for the aristocrats in order to suppress uh, the working class. Uh, So they came up with this concept of God so that they can elevate themselves and rule over the working class. Um, Plantinga says that both of the arguments made by Freud and Marx uh, are de facto arguments. There are Uh, not assuming that God doesn't exist, but asserting that God doesn't exist. And because of that, their arguments are invalid. Right. I think it pertains also to maybe a different way of spelling it out is, as Brady marked, when you use the word warrant, so like when you make a de facto, and I think he uses the example in his book, you can say Santa Claus is real, right? And hence why people say, is God real? And the examples Brady's using, but a de jury, although it can be false, makes the claims that it's either irrational or unjustified um, or immoral is the de jure claim about God or whatever the whatever it pertains to. So both can be false, but when someone makes a de jury objection or de jure, they're removing the warrant that someone may or may not have uh, in this case will not have from being able to even present their case as to why they believe God exists or otherwise. Yeah. Yep. So the hard thing that uh, maybe if our readers were, or if our listeners were to read this book, uh, maybe the hard pill to swallow with Plantinga is that he does not argue from a de facto argument for God, which is probably going to run rub people the, the wrong way. Um, because a lot of people are going to say, we can be 100% confident that God exists, and that is an absolute fact. And anyone who contradicts that is wrong. Um, that is a well, de facto... Well, yeah, and that's a de facto argument for God. Plantinga doesn't go there because he says... Uh, in the rea- and again, this might rub people the wrong way, but he says that God, the existence of God is an assumption. And I operate on assumption 
and the atheist operates on assumption. But the second that that atheist says that this is no longer assumption, but this is fact. God does not exist, and that is a fact. His argument becomes invalid for whatever reason he's making against God. Um, And so it's a brilliant line of philosophical argument that is in step with what Devin is saying, that science leaves room for a de jure proposition of God. It leaves room for the assumption that God exists. Um, But again, for our, our listeners, you have to be willing to accept the the idea that God is an assumption and that we operate on that assumption faithfully um, with the full conviction that God exists. Like we still have conviction and we still have faith um, and we believe in that assumption wholeheartedly, but we have to well, The assumption produces faith. Right. You could argue. Yeah. yeah. And that's what, that's what Plantinga argues. He uses uh, the Augustine Calvin mark model of faith and that God has revealed himself and put uh, within the hearts of those who believe a sense of the divine. Uh, he, uh, they call it the sensus divinitatis, that God has put, uh, with, put an essence of himself within the heart of the believer. And it is because of that that they are warranted in their belief because God has revealed himself. He's made himself manifest in those ways. And so they are justified, they are warranted in a de jure belief in God. And what Devin is saying is that science, the material world, uh, the atomic structure of nature leaves room for the assumption uh, and the conclusion that uh, there is a creator God um, and that creator God has revealed himself in uh, numerous ways especially through nature. And, and to that point, Brady, I, I think it's actually the Aquinas Calvin model, but um, oh, is it not Augustine? I'm pretty sure it's Aquinas, but um, to Devin's point, Devin, if you want to, after we've kind of caught, hopefully everyone up on the palatable language of theology, <laughs> or like <laughs> yeah. right? but um, can you explain because I think this battle, as we've said with the de jure argument, it kind of deals in the, the relative and what Christians feel is the, the absolute, but it's to the degree for science of relative truth that allows, and I, I think you, you wrote, Devin, before, when we were talking before about the, what leaves us open to manipulation. Um, so, and your end goal is a defense for God and why he created us this way with the ability to have free will. Um, but you give, a, I think, a well-rounded um, discussion as to why relative truth um, necessitates that in a scientific way. So if you want to kind of discuss that. Well, yeah. I mean, um, the relative truth is definitely everything that well, every study that has been done, everything that we try to understand and continue to understand. Um, yes, like you said, it is open to manipulation and has been manipulated. Uh, the very things that's being tested has to be uh, manipulated in some form, an independent and dependent variable, um, the control group and whatnot. Um, so for things to be uh, tested, they have to be then uh, also measured and calculated. 
which means that there has to be certain outcomes and not only outcomes, but be able to have predictable outcomes so that the same result uh, can be observed. And if not, then it leaves room open for either a fault of a human error, the technology being used, or something else. And for the error of something else, it would be kind of convoluted in what we can describe it as, but most likely it's the other two. So we try to limit it to that. And the manipulation by God is exactly what we've seen in everything that we can observe and be measured for, well, everything you see is created by some creator of some form. You know, there cannot be, in sense, everything. Because the original, the main theory of how everything was be- began, what mainly atheists will advocate for, and I'm sure you all heard of the Big Bang, like the entire universe being compacted in the size of less than an electron. Okay, what kind of force would bring that all together? Uh, by the way, without a spiritual uh, influence or a God influence mainly, creating something out of technically, in that sense, nothing, um, and expanding it into everything. And everything has a tendency towards entropy. So what we can study in entropy is pretty much disorder. So everything that we have, and I'll, if we want to discuss the God design in humans, we can definitely go into that. It's absolute but, chaos, man. It's chaos, man. Yeah. Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but the relative truth is trying to, based on what we can, explain everything and not only everything, but the purpose of everything. And the purpose of everything uh, then relies more on the absolute truth, I would say, than the relative truth. Because you can explain why water flows down a river why atoms uh, combine, why they have the valence electrons that are the whole source of chemistry, why things react the way they do, but why would it without a greater design? Because if everything's going towards entropy, why would there be order besides a greater purpose, not just for um, life, which we uh, exemplify in ourselves, but for a greater design entirely. Well, you, you said, and I guess this is all presupposed by the idea that, yes, you are a Christian, um, and I like hearing your takes. But to kind of delve a little deeper, as far as absolute truth goes, because we talked about relative, and that I, I think is you're basically talking about the relative truth um, in scientific findings based on the control output or whatever that you were, you were talking about and whether or not we can produce a predictable outcome. Um, likewise, those laws in God. And I think you said, and at least you wrote, never change the purview of subject manipulation. Um, but then that kind of leads right into absolute truth. So as a believer, you must, and it kind of necessitates the proposition that God restricts our uh, comprehension of absolute truth to produce free will. So if you want to unpack that, and I think these these are your own words, so if you want to unpack that. Yes, because God, of course, never changes. If he was changing, we'd have much much bigger problem on our hands. Um, 
but he never changes. He's been the same. And I'm sure you guys can back up that statement more than I can, that God never changes. Um, and laws, technically the reason they are laws is because they're not manipulated. They're not, uh, they can be calculated. Of course you see with gravity and whatnot, but they are not manipulated in terms of the essence, the very presence of it. You can, of course, alter gravity in terms of like the alter, like the artificial gravity and whatnot. Whenever, you know, the G force um, with inertia. Um, but in terms of gravity, it will still remain the constant, regardless of our manipulation, our influence. Um, but yeah, so because those things do not change. All the subjective material and subjective um, truth, which is the relative truth, uh, we'll have to rely on those laws and see what can be done based on those laws. Well, so, so right, and, and with that said, why does God then restrict our knowledge Obviously, if those relative laws in the scientific sense are to pursue faith-seeking understanding, whether it's faith in the absence of a God or not, which is the de facto argument, which is pointless. There is a God, there is no God. Okay, well, we've both established whether or not that could be claimed, and Brady kind of unpacked the assumption that goes into that. But for this sense, and with the relative understood, regardless, there is a pursuit of knowledge, um, and there's a difference necessarily theologically how we define that and scientifically as far as absolute truth goes in our obedience to the very faith in the knowledge that we yield to. Um, and it's not, that does not imply that theologians deny the pursuit of knowledge. Um, that's the epitome of our faith seeking understanding, whether that is even in the scientific realm, if we have Christian scientists, they're doing that job, but pertaining specifically to absolute truth. Um, and I kind of want to unpack because the free will discussion will bleed us into this design that God has given us for humanity and his creation of humanity. So why does God outside of the relative truth? Because you, you said specifically, um, and this pertains to the viewers that are, we had a discussion and document before that we were kind of sharing and Devin kind of presented some of his ideas. Um, he said, God restricts our understanding of absolute truth so that we can have a basis of faith and intrinsic dependence on God, allowing for free will. Um, and then you kind of connected it to the free will is enacted in relative truth to determine the physical realm and dependency of the spiritual, which kind of loops it back around. And I think that's what you're kind of getting at. So are you. I guess for those listening and even for myself and maybe Brady is. Why do you think and what is your take on why God allows such a, a what we would consider a blessed, um, limited reaction with God that we can pursue and have this this gift with him to pursue eternal relationship with him upon our salvation and you know death and resurrection? But um, why do you think and what, what's the purpose in uh, other words, for why God restricts our knowledge of absolute truth and gives us free will. Why God gives us free will. Well, you kind of spelled it out, and that's kind of why, what I read, 
is yeah. you said God restricts our understanding of absolute truth so that we can have a basis of faith and intrinsic dependence on him. What, what produced that, I guess, in other words, for you? And what's the beauty of God doing that? And from a scientific view of giving us free will. Well, he's not like dangling. Like, you know, when you play your pets, you're dangling like little chains. Like, oh, you can never get it. You can get it. <laughs> it's, it's more of that God wants us to leave room for him in terms of what we can see. Because we can put, we can become the most advanced uh, society in terms of technology, understanding every question that we have about the subjective truth. But yes, it's much harder without the absolute truth. And he, the reason he puts that there is because free will is not based on complete knowledge. It's based on the curiosity, the wanting for more besides God's intentions. And God's intentions, if purely known for what they are, then diverging from that is free will, as it was done in Adam and Eve in the garden, whatnot. But they didn't have absolute knowledge. And we have the burden of the knowledges today. And the burden, it's not a complete gift to understand the relative truth all the time, because it comes at a cost um, somehow, some way. And to find that relative truth, we end up finding closer and closer that there must be a greater design and something behind all of this. So in terms of free will, we can absolutely go our own way, try to make up our own false idols, um, try to say that, that humans are gods for finding all the stuff out when God predestined for humans to find all the stuff already. Yeah. And, and I think, I think what you're saying functions well within the worldview that Genesis 1 through 11 lays out. And you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, and they live in innocence. They live in innocent bliss with God. And God's instruction is, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, When you consume this fruit, you are going to gain knowledge, which we would never, in our modern uh, era, we would never say that the acquisition of knowledge is uh, comes at a cost. Uh, but I think what you're saying, Devin, is that it does. Uh, and the, the acquisition of knowledge, uh, while we be, can become enlightened, where does that enlightenment lead? And uh, it's just thinking about the fact that I chose to use that word. You look at where the enlightenment era and where the enlightenment period ended up, And that was the beginning of atheistic thought was the enlightenment. And we think, oh, we're pursuing this kind of rationalistic scientific endeavor. But where is that leading? Uh, It's leading to assuming that, oh, I'm so high and mighty. I'm so wise. I've discovered all of these things. I've also discovered that, oh, God doesn't exist. Um, And that's, you know, a scary road to go down. And I think it's uh, something that, uh, any person who would consider themselves intellectuals, uh, whether you're pursuing science or anything else, needs to be aware of. Um, check yourself. Check, be be full of humility uh, as you approach uh, whatever endeavor of 
pursuing and seeking knowledge that you are going down because the just looking at the the story of history how easy is it for us to become so uh so enthralled by our own wisdom that we neglect the wisdom of god so well i think that's kind of told in the story of babel and genesis that's exactly i was thinking about bringing that up well, but i was like i've just... talked too much so go well, ahead. I mean, well, you know, it's it's such a short and powerful story that kind of sets the narrative. And, and Devin, you were talking about, um, and I think this was implied in what you were talking about, but from a scientific view that we have the capacity to do immense things. Um, we could destroy this world with our um, nukes that, could wipe out our entire planet species. If we so desired, we could, it's, it's a power of destruction and death and we have the power to clone. We have the power to supposedly create life, um, at a seemingly nothing. And this, this arrogance, this secular humanism that's kind of slandered, maybe not in the same sense. And I wouldn't necessarily argue that, but it's kind of hard not to in our modern context. Um, and I don't want to interpolate into, Genesis 11, but in the Tower of Babel, you know, they're saying, come, let us make brick, bricks and let them burn them thoroughly so that they can build a a, um, a tower. And they say, come, let us build ourselves a city. And uh, I think our tower is in the top of the heavens. And um, let us make a name for ourselves. Well, the principle there is who names Adam, God, man and woman, and the, the power of giving, when you name something, you give it meaning. And there's a principle of dominion that God has to give Adam for him to have any meaning or any, um, we'll say, relative or otherwise or absolute. And so their their blasphemy is let's make a name for ourselves and our own ability. And then God kind of humorously with his, you know, the Lord came down to see the city, <laughs> which the mortals had built. So there's a double double whammy that. He has to descend down to see what these these puny humans have done. Um, and he kind of just says, well, look, they're all of one language. And um, this is only the beginning. So he acknowledges what his image. And obviously, I'm trying to bleed this into uh, Devin. Maybe the next question will be about this design and intent in the Garden of the Creation narrative. But anyways, um, kind of comes down and says, let it let come let us go down and confuse their language because of what they are capable um, out of the dominion and meaning that I have given them. That they are nothing apart from the meaning that I have imparted to them. And so the Lord did it and he scattered them across the face of the earth um, in Babel. Well, yeah. And what's interesting, what's interesting, you comparing it to Adam to you look at the the. The name Adam comes from the word Adama in Hebrew, which is dust or like ground or mm-hmm. dirt. Yeah. And so Adam means like one who comes from the dirt. And then you look at the creation story and in God forms Adam from the dust and then breathes the, his ruach, his breath into the nostrils of Adam. And that is what gives Adam life. And then you compare that to what they're doing at Babel and... Mm-hmm. 
they're wanting to create a name from themselves. And then what is that name? Well, it's the highest name. It's the name above every name. And we know that because they're wanting to erect a tower that goes towards the heavens. And so they're wanting to create a name that sits in heaven when God created man from the lowest. He created man from the dust. And that is our essence. That's how we were formed. Uh, so it's the it's the polar opposite of the creation story. So, uh, Devin, then, if you if you have anything to say to that, go ahead. And then, <clears throat> I guess, kind of introduce what Brady and I have kind of already started, but within your own um, paradigm of this design that God had for man. Um, yeah. So, if you have anything, respond to the first, and then go into the design aspect. You guys brought up a lot of topics. I don't think I can cover them all. It's like, yes. it's like it's this, 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 this. You want to answer all that? Um, I said whatever you would like to say. I will try my best. Um, so I do like that you brought, and it immediately came to mind, out of the dust, because that is absolutely what is being tested now, because out of the dust means out of the ground, out of the earth. Um, we absolutely came from out of the earth. All eukaryotic cells came from the earth. All archaea, bacteria, virus, everything, uh, viroids, prions, everything that we have came from the earth itself. And mainly in eukaryotic, there is the initial, um, I don't know if you guys heard about RNA world, where it's pretty much, you know, there's DNA, deoxyribonucleic uh, acid, and uh, RNA, which is ribonucleic acid. Um so that is pretty much the um, RNA coming together. Then uh, the DNA came after that. Cells engulfing one another in phagocytosis, creating the eukaryotic cells. That's why mitochondria, by the way, a little factoid, mitochondria uh, were definitely evidence of phagocytosis because they have their own DNA. They have their own metabolic pathway that now the... Um, eukaryotic cells can actually use that for okay uh, some synthetic. questions what is <laughs> phagocytosis phagocytosis is pretty much <sighs> vor <laughs> i don't know if that's the right word to use it's pretty much engulfing encapsulating um so whenever you think of a cell like you see a white blood cell engulfing a bacteria you can look up a video like that that's kind of like phagocytosis but for eukaryotic cells they used it and in white blood cells, they destroy it. They dismantle it. They apoptosis for the cell, which is pretty right. much programmed cell death for that. But And then so, you're using yes. another word, the metabolic. Is that what you were saying? Metabolic pathway? Yes. Yeah. What is um, that? For cells, mm, <laughs> that's a very complex topic. A metabolic pathway is pretty much what the cell is able to use to make energy for itself and how it handles materials. Photosynthesis? <laughs> for plants, yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, photosynthetic plants uh, or photosynthetic cells absolutely will use um, sunlight and water and carbon dioxide for to make glucose, which is the carbohydrate that it mainly uses for um, cell metabolic uh, usage uh, awesome. to not only build – yes. So it gets pretty complex in that. But, um, yes, yeah, so eukaryotic cells engulfing other cells. Then out of that, combining small organisms and then 
creating bigger organisms out of that. And, you know, like the uh, earth after it cooled down a lot of water and then you have algae creating the oxygen in the air so that complex life forms can then use that oxygen. And if you know why it's so important, it's to bind uh, in the mitobolic pathway as the final electron acceptor, which allows then things to be created. So you then have these organisms becoming bigger and bigger, engulfing using other cells and organisms. Um, and then you have then the semi-aquatic, since it was all water, then there's land that dried up, land, then that's what the evolution thinks that then humans came from um, those. Uh, now, this is, little this is I know it's a hot topic. What? Those little tadpole things. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's an absolute hot topic is evolution. Because, yes, actually, not only does religion depend on evolution or uh, there, I said it. Whoa. Religion <laughs> does depend on evolution. It really does. And it does not go against the Bible whatsoever. And the evolution we're thinking of is that we came from chimps. I severely doubt that. <laughs> Could be a possibility. But we definitely depend on evolution to create the cells. It's not like Adam okay. went to a semi-aquatic lizard and said, go, Grandpa, go. Go, Grandpa, go. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit more complex than that. So are you... Okay, so the famous picture of scientific evolution of the monkey slowly turning into, uh, what are we, homo sapiens? Is that the correct scientific word? Uh, yeah, that should be it. You know, that image of Darwin's drawings from a monkey turning mm -hmm. into a man and the different mm -hmm. the progression of that. So you're saying that that is not the correct understanding of, or I guess the modern understanding of scientific evolution, uh, but you're arguing for rather the common ancestry of all living organisms. Is that what, is that correct? Oh yeah. We can all originate ourselves to the earth out of the dust. Um, absolutely. With eukaryotic cells, there had to be some form of DNA or RNA being created to then tell the cell what it needs to make and what it needs to do and function. And that's the only reason that complex things exist in terms of the chimps um, evolving out of them, because there are bone evidence of chimps and then Homo erectus. Well, more modern terms, if we're just to jump a few Homo erectus, Neanderthals, Neanderthals, I guess is the correct way. Yeah, they're so pretentious. Uh, but that is absolutely true that Neanderthals uh, did exist that's why we have allergies, by the way. If you have an allergy, you have some Neanderthal DNA in you. Uh, that's just a fact. I'm sorry. But then the Homo, sapi uh, homo sapiens um, came out of that. Uh, but in terms of the chimps themselves, it had to originate some way from the semi-aquatic lizard to then the monkeys to then what we see nowadays um, to us. And would that deny that we came out of the dust? Absolutely not. We actually depend on it. That theory proves that we did indeed come out of the dust. Well, I think... Okay, so... Or go ahead, Tyler. For Darwin, and he's kind of the notorious... Um, I guess what we would say is the enemy, which just simply isn't true as far as 
when you look at his deistic belief, whether you want to say he was a Christian or not, it's a little bit far-fetched, but his, his defense, and some have said, I think we learned this in like our environmental science class um, when I took at McLennan Community College. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but um, <laughs> we, we talked extensively about his own beliefs and the discussion of whether or not his deistic writings of the origin of species was um, rather a defense or, or, or an apology for creation, um, not instantaneous, but rather the, the evolution of creation rather than the, the miraculous uh, God made man literally out of dust. Um, so whether there are disagreements or not, at least between my own theology and yours, Devin, um, for you, you would, you would say that the creation narrative of Genesis is epochs or extended periods of X amount of time that, allowed for God to create. And so those days were not literal days. As I understand, I'm not saying I disagree or disagree. I'm just saying this is what you believe as far as your knowledge gained from the scientific study and community um, combined with your theistic belief in the Trinitarian God, that you believe that these days were not literal days, but rather uh, it's a narrative structure and that these are epochs of times to the degree that we don't know what these exactly are. We have speculations, our own relative truth, <laughs> but that's what you believe. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because um, only through God in terms of that, would it be able to be catalyzed like that, like into six days, which so much stuff happened. <laughs> Normally we're seeing from our, our more objective point of view now in well, you look at the planetary systems and whatnot, what's happening like with the formation of stars and everything. Um, those things take quite a long time and God is independent of time. If he was dependent on time, then he wouldn't really be God, would he? Um, or is it his willful choice to participate in time and space and matter? Well, the very being who created it must... If he's omnipresent, he's both. It's a paradox. Well, I wouldn't say that he's restricted in the way that we were. That wouldn't make any sense. Um, but I never said he, he's restricted. I'm saying he's, that's the paradox. Is He's able to participate with us in time, space, and matter. At the same time being atemporal himself. And that's his paradox of his existence. If you're going to be, as you were talking and kind of hinting at, you never said it, but the uncaused cause or the unmoved mover, to use Aristotelian language, I believe, then... He has, by necessity, has to be both. Yes. Um, hmm. Yes. Well, that's a little bit more complex than just saying that he has to be both. He is definitely, we're limiting that towards the physical realm. And if, oh, yeah, some people say, like the atheist, oh, he's just a being in the fifth dimension. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> or 11th dimension. No. Um, I'd say that he's definitely beyond the realms of our physical observational, which does include the time and space. And to be involved in our time and space, he is not limited to our purview of what he can and cannot do. 
in terms of that time and space. Um, so yes, you as to reference what you were saying, yes, it could technically be done only through his power in six days, but I do not believe that's the way it happened for things to form out perfectly um, as the way it did. And he can create everything perfectly. And that's, but based on our observation, we're able to observe everything to be dependent on our time, our limited view on time and space. Mainly we depend on it being periods of time. Okay. So I have a a question. Um, And I guess I'll just start with this. It seems like in the scientific community now that if you disregard evolutionary theory, then uh, then you're just a fool and you haven't accepted the the truth of science and the way that science has revealed itself in the modern era. Um, and you're just wrong for not accepting that. So I think that's the common approach that's taken within the scientific community now. Um which makes me want to ask uh, a question Um, and the way, so having said that I'll go. So starting with the science perspective, now I'm going to talk Bible just for a little bit and then I'm hopefully going to be able to blend those two into each other. Um, You should Tyler from, from a Bible uh, reader perspective. Uh, and from a theistic perspective, um, something when reading Genesis, I think the cop out that a lot of us have, uh, people like me and you have, is looking at the first eleven chapters of Genesis and saying that the goal of this text is not to give a scientific uh, explanation of creation; rather, it's a poetic and uh, theistic explanation of how the world currently exists as we see it, uh, rather than giving you, you know, a detailed analysis and explanation, uh, of the science, it makes an argument for a creator God who is, uh, sovereign and loving, I think is the purpose of Genesis one through 11. Uh, and so our cop out would be because this isn't a scientific textbook, it's not trying to answer scientific questions. Therefore I don't have to answer scientific questions. And I think uh, when people like me and you, when Bible uh, readers and interpreters are pushed by people uh, coming from a scientific perspective, uh, you know, maybe 70 years ago, the conservative approach by Bible readers was trying to, scientifically explain and justify Genesis 1 through 11 uh, because we felt like we had to defend God. Now our approach has changed. And now that we say this isn't a scientific textbook. um, And so I don't have to scientifically defend Genesis 1 through 11. That's not what it was trying to accomplish when the text was written. And so I don't have to answer those scientific questions. Um, And so I think that's the approach that, that Bible readers are taking today if they don't want to deal with the issue of evolution. Uh, I think that's a fine argument. I think that's true in and of itself. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is not trying to give a detailed scientific explanation of creation. Um, But I don't think that excuses us from answering scientific questions. 
And so if I were to try to give an explanation of how to remain uh, theologically conservative and yet acknowledge the scientific reality that Devin is communicating, uh, it would be something like this. And so Tyler, I want you to respond this respond to this from a theological perspective. And then Devin, if you'll respond to this from a scientific perspective, and if we can see if this, this explanation lines up in both camps, I think that would be helpful. And then tell me where it doesn't line up. So hopefully I can refine this argument and then maybe we can learn something from, from it. Um, my explanation would be that if we're operating on the assumption that God is God, therefore he is sovereign and all-powerful, then he is capable of creating a young earth that looks old. And he is capable of creating organisms who have uh, intrinsically similar and almost identical uh, atomic and chemical structures that uh, looks as if evolution is a good theory of what happened, but because God is all knowing and all powerful, he knew that this was a, a chemical and a biological and atomic structure that would work well. And so he reproduced a similar design in much of his creation, uh, meaning that uh, just the anatomy of, for example, the anatomy of a chimp compared to a human is all, is so similar, but it's because God intended it to be that way. Not that humans are derived from chimps, but that God knew the, the science behind this is what's going to work. And so I'm going to replicate this over and over and over and over again in so many different biological and just, uh, maybe not even biological, but other structures as well, like water and dust, like you were saying, Devin, uh, that he repeats, he repeated those chemical structures um, over and over and over again. And I don't know, I'm kind of at the end of my scientific theory. I don't have the language to describe this very well. Does that make sense at all? Uh, is that plausible? I guess, Devin, you can start, and then Tyler, you can talk about whether or not that aligns with conservative theology. You're killing it, Brady. Um, yeah, I mean, whenever you talk about, it is definitely possible that God, well, so humans are his technical perfect design. Um, and you mentioned chimps. We share about 99 points, gosh, six, seven over 99% of our DNA with them. And, well, if you look at that, we share over 60% with a banana. <laughs> so there are obviously points where things kind of took a turn. Um, and I was saying before with eukaryotic cells that, yes, I do believe in a common ancestor. Out of the dust came humanity. Um, evolved and man uh, manipulated in God's intention, not humans, God's uh uh, will uh, for humans you're arguing that they are they just they kind of came independently of chimps and primates 
but well, he made them similar. Is that what you're what saying? I'm saying? Yeah, what I'm saying is that God made, made, specifically made, and had a hand in making every individual uh, living structure that exists, whether it's a blade of grass or Adam. Um, but because he's all powerful and all knowing, he is both capable and wise enough to repeat an atomic and chemical and biological structure that he knew would work and was suitable for the environment that we would be living in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like he created the perfect environment for humanity to exist. Yeah. Not just talking about the, not just talking about the environment though. So the, the thing that evolution hinges on is that we can compare human or we can commit compare the human species to chimps with 99 point what was it seven percent accuracy is that what you said yeah some right like and that. so if that's the the thought process of how evolution functions that the more biological structures are related to each other the more that they are related in the evolutionary process what i'm saying is that can we disregard the evolutionary process and say that these are related not because evolution but because god just decided to make them related because he knew it was going to work that way now that seems more like an absolute truth <laughs> that it, well it's acknowledging it's acknowledging the common thread that runs through science and runs through runs through biology um, without having to believe in evolutionary theory. It's saying that these things are similar and God intended them to be similar, but that doesn't mean that this thing came from that thing. So you're saying like more of a co-evolution then? So co-evolution is pretty much two distinct organisms that over time, due to no influence of each other, or could be, um, but two that diverged, but are very much alike, even though they pretty much didn't spawn from the same type of things. Like they both developed at the same time or one before the other, but not from one another. Is that what you're I saying? Think, yeah. I, I think what I'm arguing doesn't consider epochs of time. I think uh, not that that isn't, plausible um and i don't even think it's my argument is dependent or independent from the time variable uh i think what i am arguing is that god knew what was going to be successful in a banana god knew what was going to be successful for a monkey and god knew the biological structure that was going to be successful for a human and just because those things are related to each other. It doesn't mean that those things originated from each other, uh, that God is all powerful and he, all, he is all wise. And so he knew what it was going to take for a human to exist. And he knew what it was going to take for a monkey to exist. And, uh, I don't know. That's as far as I'm getting Tyler. Do you have any thoughts? Does my argument make any sense at all? There's been a lot said, so I'm going to try and congeal both sides to the best of my ability. But 
Devin, I think you make a point. So, and correct me if I'm wrong swiftly, but if there's a eukaryotic origin story by which we are all connected um, through one, we'll say, possibility or existence of the origin of the first life, um, it makes it, you can make a, a beautiful theological case in that case, if we all came from one source and it diversified um, to different environments or what, what have you, um, that kind of just displays the beauty that God had for man as far as being image bearers and the intent and the creating the environment for man, as Brady, you were saying with the, the chimpanzee or the banana or for whatever fruit or animal or phytoplankton, whatever it might be that for us to have that dominion to where we do now, that we would reach the top of the creative echelon um, for the net, you know, the naturalistic world. Um, you could make that case as you could make it. And I'm not saying that it's heresy or um, otherwise I think as Christians, there needs to be a submission. And when it comes to, and I just kind of want to make a quick point and this kind of sounds off topic, but I'll, I'll reloop it back that, Devin, we were talking earlier about God's participation in time, space, and matter. There needs to be that paradox because Christ became incarnate and that Christ partook in um, human flesh, dwelt, and while he was present in his ministry, was not omnipresent. So there needs to, there, there is a display, and we are unwarranted as Christians not to say that, well, God clearly has a, uh, a both-and paradox with his atemporal and temporal existence, um, the latter being a, a willful choice. Um, but that kind of demands by his own nature that he does that. Um, without delving too far into that, I think, Brady, what we're kind of getting into when it comes to the the origin, and I kind of knew we were going to go into Genesis, <laughs> um, but so in the early 20th century, we had the fundamentalists and their response to this, this rise of um, modernity. And while Karl Barth was most famous for his slaying of modernity, um, we, we don't necessarily have to get into that. Just want to bring a quick name up. But the fundamentalists, you know, back in that infamous court case, you know, or whatever the, the, the year was exactly, I don't remember, it's like 4,064 days. Um, yeah that we, we have, <laughs> that, that was when the earth was created. We had seven days, seven literal days. Um, and I was talking to one of my professors about this, and it's and he, he knows Hebrew like the back of his own hand. He, he picks up a Bible, and he doesn't ever really pick up the English, and he reads the Hebrew like it's, uh, and speaks it just as fluently in his English, but um, at least ancient Hebrew, that is. But I said to say, the the Hebrew word for day yom is used yom yom. Um, in I want to say in a literal sense and also a um, not necessarily allegorical, but it's almost mocking humanity's mortality and existence in the temporal realm. Like what is what is this to you? Like what is a day into uh, in comparison to what God views as far as time goes? Um, and I think a lot of Christians land on this development of the argument that while there's a possibility for epochs, and, and then here's the danger. 
in rejection of the fundamentalist movement and what their, their stringent obedience to. We know everything about when was created. We know we have a scientific, we're defeating the scientists as if we're the, the, the true enemy, right? But then we were like, oh, no, we, we believed in evolution all along. We're not at odds. We're, we're, we're best friends. But I think in mainstream Christianity, there's still this war being waged over evolution and its roots. And it's they're both the de facto, I would argue, is a, they're both the de facto, as we got into earlier. It's like saying it all stems from do we believe in, does God exist or not? And by implication, if you do not, there must be some other source, just as much as if you believe in God, we are created and that's what matters. And that's the meta narrative being painted for Christians, um, Jews, uh, monotheistic beliefs, and you could argue some polytheistic that that we are created beings, um, pertaining specifically to Christianity, and we were created from the earth, and we also have to congeal the two accounts of creation that are written in our own scripture, and. I think many people, yeah, what? <laughs> I think many people have to be okay with the both and. And it's kind of the ineffable description. It is sufficient to know that we are created, and that's the point. And I think that's what you're getting to, Brady. And I think at the same time, though, many people just as Christians and Christian scholars, they'll land in a place where there is some open-ended ineffable quality here and while we might have scientific persuasions to say well hey this this could be an epoch i think many people land just simply on there's a seven-day creation um can i defend this as the dogmatic belief of any of my theology will i teach and profess this the irony is they always teach and profess that there is this both and but i'm going to choose seven days um and I think that's that's what the mainstream Christian uh, belief is. Does that mean it's right. heresy and to so, say that there's epochs? Not necessarily. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm arguing is, can we acknowledge the the scientific claim that there is correlation uh, between the the structures of biological organisms without saying uh, that? So I want to be scientific enough to be able to acknowledge that there is correlation between biological structures without saying that evolution is the causation of that correla- correlation, right? If you've ever taken a statistics class, the first things that the, that they ever tell you is that correlation does not equal causation. I think that's what I'm arguing for just from the creation standpoint, that we can acknowledge, hey, that chimps and humans are 99.7% similar from a anatomical structure comparison that doesn't. And where I'm coming from is saying that doesn't mean that evolution was the cause of those things Uh, that I'm saying that there is a possibility that God created monkeys that way intentionally and that God created homo sapiens that way intentionally. And it is good. Um, that we didn't ha- one did not have to come from the other in order for there to be this correlation between atomical structures. 
Yeah, and I think that that's where most Christians land. It's we need to likewise in the scientific field needs to concede that there could be this miraculous um, conception. Um, and it's Charles Darwin on the Galapagos Islands, if I believe, is when he's testing these different species of birds and how there's so many similarities and how their their beaks um, were so vastly different. He posed the question, why? Um, as one naturally would, I guess <laughs> not until him, but it kind of necessitates that God could have just simply created this. And that could satisfy, and I think that satisfies most theologians and for the apologists, they get way more in depth um, and necessarily to combat. Um, but that's all the, that's where also the danger comes from is like, Oh, we've always believed this. Uh, and I, I don't think many modern apologists would say that um, they, they're willing to concede some ground as far as the scientific gains, but we celebrate that. And I think that there is a, it does, it, we still have yet to be contradicted to the degree where it becomes a approved immoral, wrong um, assumption to say, well, hey, evolution is the only answer. And God can, it's impossible for God to have created, as Brady was saying, this immediate chimpanzee or this immediate human from the dust of the earth. If he truly is omnipotent, um, omniscient and omnibenevolent and uh, so on and so forth with the omniqualities. So, Devin, uh, I'd like for you to respond again. Does the does the correlation versus causation argument make sense um, from a scientific perspective? It does in its own way, uh, but in your guys' purview, it definitely diverges. Um, I'm saying that it doesn't have to be specific six days like a in a literal sense um or that we couldn't have come from the same one and like you said that humans have been perfected because well we see evolution even nowadays in the way that it forms i'm saying that neglecting what god can do and is doing and ever changing us but not himself um is absolutely happening and I would argue that uh, that though it could be from evolution, the very creation of everything, and not coevolution necessarily, um, but that God did make a perfect design out of all the organisms He created. You know, He made humans with the actual spirit and in His own image. That though the six days would implicate that they, we were born immediately out of the ground. Um, and that everything came to be very, very fast. That's what I was saying. Immensely catalyzed and catalyzed just means speeding up the process or lowering the reactive, uh, the activation energy. Um, but the prior, I should actually say, that just made it way quicker, way faster, and everything just kind of sprung up, which absolutely through God's influence can, of course, be done. He can do anything. We're limited to our human perspective and our human explanations. Uh, That's exactly what science is. We try to explain things that make sense to us, like in carbon dating, and try and look at historic evidence of things that existed and 
processes that we're seeing now, what kind of rate that takes. And of course, God could have been like, snap of fingers, his own will, and it immediately be done. That's completely possible. I'm saying that there's that though that argument is possible, that mine is also possible. Um, it doesn't stray away from religion at all. It actually advocates it. So, so I think we're back to the de jure versus de facto thing. I think where all three of us are kind of landing is that uh, evolution, and then from the other side, that uh, what would be a, a phrase of describing our position, Tyler? Just, um, I guess, intentional design. Um, that both of those are de jure arguments and de jure assumptions that give room for the other being a possibility. Uh, although we have reason to believe and that we are warranted in believing one thing or the other. Uh, and also being warranted that God exists in both of those possibilities as well. Uh, and that God is the originator of either of those two perspectives, which is a good place to land. Um, I do have a couple more evolution questions for you though. Uh, with you saying that with you acknowledging, uh, and, uh, not to say that you wouldn't acknowledge this, um, but with you saying that humanity was created in the image of God and that we are the, like the, the focal point of his creation, would you say that the evolutionary process for humanity has ended uh, because we are like the focal point of God's design? Does humanity continue to change? Uh, you know, and I guess this would be, I guess to me that would be another assumption, but do you have an opinion on that? Um, Humans are of course, absolutely changing. Um, That's the very basis why we have races, different skin tone, why people are allergic, why people cannot handle milk, you know, or dairy products. Uh, Humans definitely diverge uh, genetically and we see a lot more variation and technically in that evolution. Um, because evolution mainly is the genetic diversification or changing of the actual DNA, which DNA, you remember, um, is adenosine, thiamine, um, guanine, and cysteine, mainly for that. And RNA is then, I'm just giving you random factoids, but it's very important that it's also for RNA is adenosine, uracine, um, and guanine and cysteine. So would you say um, that... Would you say that humans are still going through the evolutionary process? Yes, but we are absent from the day that human Adam, as soon as Adam was created, that was the perfect design. Um, he didn't have a tummy ache. He didn't have, <laughs> he didn't have a lot of problems that we have nowadays. Um, before sin, after sin, we're seeing a lot more divergence. And would that be like, Hey, does that mean that without sin, will we all look alike? Will we all have pretty much the same traits? I'm saying no through God's design that no matter who we are, no matter what we look like, no matter like in terms of our genetic diversity, even having uh, mutations that might be in, you know, in Dow syndrome with trisomy, having three, um, three chromosomes at the 21st, having some manipulation that we're all still God's design, no matter what manipulation, um, 
what kind of factor takes uh, place. So what would define a human as a human is God's direct influence and spiritual uh, blessing. So yes, we're still, and we're saying today, we're still diverging and creating a lot of variation. Um, but modern globalism has allowed for people to have a lot more integration of actual traits. But we saw that humans are still changing, still creating variation. Like blue eyes wouldn't have existed if some mutation didn't happen. You hear that, Tyler? Um, uh, yeah, so it's not exactly that we're going towards something better or away from God. It's that God is making us more independent of what, like, in terms of genetic independence, that we are able to be our own person without um, being exact copies of one another. It seems to me kind of what you're saying is that the the fallen world that we live in, the fact that we live in a world full of sin and corruption and evil, uh, is the reason for the evolutionary theory of natural selection, uh, which is the reason why we evolve. Like we evolve so that we don't die. And why would we possibly die? Well, it's because we live in a fallen world and because we have rebelled against God. And so that reality creates the pretense uh, for the theory of natural selection and that we are constantly evolving. We're constantly changing so that we become better suited for our environment so that we're not dying. Yes. As other organisms, you're exactly right. Um, we didn't have to be immune to the common cold. We didn't have to be immune to a lot of viruses, prions, viroids that we have nowadays that just, and bacteria that wreak havoc, um, on us and try to, because the world is now, we are not, I guess the biggest change between God before sin and after sin was probably the world being for us and the world now being against us. We're definitely supposed to have not only um, to take over, to have complete dominion over the world, uh, but to lead it in his image, which we strayed from ever since the first sin. So yes, dominion means not that we quiver or shake whenever a new virus comes out, but that we handle it and that we overcome it. Um, yeah, COVID-19. Uh, you ready to run for president? <laughs> uh, I am not. I well, probably better than the current one, but, (laughs) (laughs) but no, we are absolutely having to fight this constant battle. And that's why we see cancer. We see all these genetic mutations too, like that go towards the wrong thing. You know, why a lot of chronic diseases, chronic illnesses that we're facing more in the modern uh, developed world, um, that there's always going to be a challenge of this world against us, trying to take us out, trying to break us down. But through God and through the knowledge he's bestowed upon us and each other, we really depend on each other to make it, to continue to survive because we are proving to God we are worthy uh, to be on this earth. We are worthy of him. Well, we're not worthy. of It's absolutely everything from him is a blessing, but we are worthy and we are wanting for him. Since we're the salt of the earth, right? Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Hey. Well, I think maybe a key transition here would be, uh, I guess before that, I should add that maybe Brady and I should have said six days creation was completed. Um, 
I didn't catch that earlier. I'm used to saying seven, but six days is the creation mark, I guess, Sabbath. Is, if we want to extend that time of creation to seven, just to say God rest, right? But, um, so, Devin, when it comes to this evolutionary standard of, or what we would consider microevolution for humanity in our response to our environments or otherwise, how do we, and how does that exemplify um, the very design God has had for us, um, maybe made in his image, as you, as a Christian, and I ask this being a Christian yourself, um, because we also have different theological interpretations, but at the same time, I, I would love to hear your design um, and your, your uh, take on the design of the Imago Dei, as we would say, the image of God um, as being human in, in, in terms of this microevolution that you're discussing. Okay, so now we're on the topic more of God's design in human. Um, I guess we've been on that for a little while. Um, yes, God's design in human. So is so we don't realize how rare we actually are um, to be ourselves. Um, the chance of your parents meeting, the chance of everything working out right for them to want to conceive you, and then your genetic, once the sperm meets the egg, and gets fused in, and the chromosomes uh, gets dismantled in the sperm, and then the egg and microtubules bring them together. And then as soon as they interlock, the 23 chromosomes each. So you take that math, do that math real quick, for that variation. So 2 to the 23rd power is over 8 million, like 8,600,000, something like that, just for genetic variation based on what you could be. Just you. And for have that many people and that many, it's truly nothing short of a miracle why everything happens the way it does. Like life is truly a miracle and the chances of it happening exactly the way it did uh, are baffling. Honestly, un uncalculable, arguably. Even though it's fi uh, finite, but it's just that God created things to be a certain way that only a good, like an immense creator can actually achieve. Do you have another question to that? Yeah, I think, I think that's an important um, discussion topic as far as the, the sheer quantity of odds into the, I'm sure that could far exceed the quintillions of, um, chances that we are even able to be here, especially with 8 billion people. Um, and I, I guess it's more contingent upon our, our location and the amount of within our own region and stuff like that between male and female. Um, but let alone the, um, the amount of genetic codes released between each ejaculation. And I'm not trying to be crude, but just the, the sincere odds for the sperm within each, um, ejaculation spread apart out how many times you have sex with your presumed spouse. Um, those odds just multiply at an exponential rate. Um, and it's something that, and that's kind of where Christians kind of just go, Oh, well, it's wonderful that <laughs> I, I'm created with a purpose, right. That God allowed. And, um, 
but I mean, maybe the, the philosopher within me is like, well, couldn't you just argue that it is that chance and that any one of those other people could have just been the product of that same action. Um, and again, that we just go round and round with the de facto and I don't mean to detract, but, um, I think with the principle of, and the reason why I asked that Devin for microevolution purposes, um, when it comes to our ability to grow and develop, especially in a, in a world where we are so wonderfully diverse and we are able to mix um, languages, species, uh, not, spe- not species, sorry, races or otherwise. <laughs> That's yeah. bestiality, Tyler. My bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but rather this wonderful conglomeration of, and I think that's what America is, is this beautiful array of um, the gene pool being meshed together. But at the same time, as you were kind of hinting at, is this microevolution take on, so I've heard rumors, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. So if we came from the northernmost regions of Norway or um, Iceland or otherwise, um, that we're not meant to be in this and in, in, say Texas because of the climate and otherwise, I mean, I've even heard stuff like that um, for our viewers. Yes, we are three white dudes, um, but I'm still kind of drawing that there's a beautiful mix of the genes. So as far as microevolution, we are such a privileged and aristocratic state on the echelon that we, and we'll say in the Western developed countries that we do not understand uh, to the degree of what necessity do we need to enhance our quality of life. And this kind of loops back to the absolute truths and relative truths when we're kind of seeking to understand. So what within our current predicament, because we're almost backtracking philosophically as a, as a species between being so, aristocratic and hedonistic in our our existence that we are not aware of what would even necessitate the advance of microevolution and yes we have scientists that are analyzing that but it's turned into sociology and psychology more so than um what some people call soft sciences but still i mean nonetheless it is this change um, so I, I guess I'm, that's what more I was trying to get at was the, as far as market yeah. evolution. To put what you're saying in practical details and to use a, a, just a common day example, Tyler, what you're saying is that white people shouldn't be able to live in Texas from an evolutionary perspective, but because we have sunscreen, we can, and we take that for granted. <laughs> oh, wow. That is an oversimplification <laughs> <laughs> it's an oversimplification, but it's like. But it, I mean, this is what I've been kind told. Of what you're saying. This is what I've been told from studies on our uh, ability to re- produce melanin and our um, our proclivity for. But it, I mean, even with the refraction of light off of the snow, is that deterred because of white? That uh, the color white. That we are, and I mean, from the snow that the light would be refracted just as much so that it would cause uh, damage to either our eyes or 
um, our skin itself. So it's this, and I, I am very ignorant as to what that comment pertains. And that's why I don't necessarily like the simplification, but, um, <laughs> sorry, you know, uh, but I, I, I see, um, in, in essence, I, I, I would agree, I guess, I suppose, Devin, this is more of your, within your purview. Yes. <laughs> you brought up, yeah, why white people, yeah, white people shouldn't be in Texas. What are they doing? Um, so, yeah, we definitely have modern advances to allow us to live in circumstances because melanin uh, allows us to trap uh, vitamin A, uh, sorry, vitamin D. Um, so you can't say also in that argument, uh, people who have more melanin in their skin uh, can't live in the northern parts because they'll be vitamin D deficient. <laughs> and they won't be able to grow their bones as well. They'll have a lot of cell abnormalities. Um, so, But due to modern technologies such as either taking supplements, like we have a lot of, at the Transplant Clinic, we give a lot of people vitamin D supplementation who are limited in that. Um, so people who are not able to achieve some things just based on their genetic um, capabilities with modern technology, with science, uh, we are able to expand to different areas and have a whole diversity in one specific area, such as in Texas. Um, and we can spread out to all different parts of the world. And we're seeing, and you talked about the snow, that's why uh, blue eyes definitely helps in it being reflective. But no, we won't get the same amount of sunlight technically from the reflection of the snow. And it's much more cloudy um, there, too, and a lot less direct sunlight um, that we see towards the equator and whatnot. Uh, so, yeah, we're technically more. So if you're looking for just the differences in humans, of course, uh, having less melanin allows you to have uh, less necessity for vitamin D um, and be able to handle the um reflection of the actual snow itself and having darker skin will help you uh prevent sunburns or whatnot well it's it's need more vitamin D. it's more pertaining to the philosophical conundrum of okay if as you were advocating for or before about microevolution within humanity that exists today right it is measurable we can see it uh, and the reason why we brought up the distinction between races and the the science of melanin and our ability to refract or absorb sunlight, prevent sunburns or vitamin D or whatever it may be, um, as a form of microevolution or a product of evolution. But the reason why I brought it up, for micro, as as far as microevolution is concerned, especially when we live in a hedonistic and aristocratic form of life if you will, the, we are blissfully ignorant to how to progress because we have this now this disillusioned um, enterprise of progression. And we, we, we are, are celebrating this idea, but from a scientific point of view, um, what would necessitate microevolution to even move forward if we have accomplished such a an end of uh, how do, how do I say this um, 
the ability for a mass culture to even exist in hedonism. And I, I mean, to the extent of even America's poor doesn't know poor to the degree of the global South or otherwise that we are, we're so are good. Go Tyler, are you saying that our biological structures no longer require the evolutionary process because of our technological advances? No, I'm, I'm simply Yes and no. I'm simply asking that question, like what would necessitate us to move forward so that if microevolution does exist, and I'm not necessarily denying it, I didn't need to say that again, I'm not necessarily denying that. I'm just saying it's, an, it's my inquisitive nature is saying what would propel us to, what would, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. What would necessitate the microevolution process to persist into uh, Western culture um, and this is definitely exploding my ignorance on the topic of what, what moves us biologically to advance, um, especially in the, the, this modern present world. And that's what I'm getting at. Um, not so much the, uh, uh, the, the previous topic, but rather biologically, what, what motivates us, uh, in a way that we, we, we clearly are unaware of. Um, does that make sense? I think you're, I think, yeah, I think you make a good amount of sense. Uh, are you saying, just to clarify, <laughs> like I'm saying with Brady, are you saying that we are, um, that you're saying that what's the need for continuing to evolve? I'm, Is that what you're saying? Essentially, essentially, yes. I'm just intrigued by the idea that if we live in this society that's truly marked by um, the this beatific vision of humanity and our secular humanism, although see that's I think that's what you're I, 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 that's yeah. the argument that I I don't understand why you're making that connection. Like, what does what does evolution have to do with hedonism? Because we no longer have the necessity of survival to the extent that would rapidly propel evolution even and still in the in the confines of microevolution that we don't have to react a certain way to survive the way that we did in the past okay so you're saying that because we don't have to think as much about shelter and food and warmth and all those things uh we can go uh snort cocaine off of hookers yeah uh is that what you're saying (laughs) your your simplifications are uh are very curious as to how your mind goes there, but still, yes. No, I, no, I took I, that's a Jordan Peterson really. quote. I took that from him. Yeah. Um, well, yes. If that's if that's the analogy he drew, but still, um, yes. In so, so what you're saying is our biological structures aren't under such stress of trying to survive all the time that we are allowed to live in this life of idolatry and this life of just pursuing after our lusts with a hundred percent desire. Um, that if, because that's the case, like there's nothing motivating us to evolve. Um, that's what you're saying. So, so what subconsciously and down to the, uh, I don't know if it would, go down to the cellular or atomic level of microevolution, but what 
Because if we look at studies that even show from a sociological or psychological perspective of our ability to communicate and something as simple as our vocabulary has shrunk tremendously over the past couple hundred years, even hundred in, in the exponential rate that I'm discussing. So it, it's, you could argue, okay, are we communicating more clearly with our ability to use emojis or otherwise to say, to function as our communication back to almost what we would view as a primitive cultural sense. Um, but at the same time, you could argue that the exact opposite of, well, this, this one symbol implies X amount and it's all translated upon me using it. Right. Um, I'm simply curious and I have no idea and I'd have to, I'd have to think about it for quite an extensive period of time and do a lot of research, but from the microevolution, <laughs> I was just curious. No, just... So it seems, it seems, it seems to me that I, I see what you're saying. And I think I agree with you. I think because of, because we live in the Western hemisphere during the 21st century, we don't have the necessity to, to evolve biologically. But I think the question, uh, the next question is, does mental progression uh, count as part of the evolutionary process? Uh, So does the, can we consider the industrial revolution as part of the evolutionary process? Uh, and can we consider all of the innovation that occurred during the 20th century as part of the evolutionary process? So it's not our physical bodies that are being transformed anymore, but our minds are becoming so uh, so receptive to the possibility of, of new technologies and new innovation that from a science perspective, we can consider that evolution. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I would because I'm naturally skeptical to evolutionary theory, uh, at least from a biological perspective. Uh, I don't know where I personally would fall on that, that idea, but I think that's kind of where you're going is that our bodies have stopped doing this. Uh, should we consider different areas of evolutionary development? And does that impact our brains? Well, yeah. is, it, is it producing regression? Uh, you know, is, are we not evolving, but regressing and our capacity because produced out of the, what we would theologically say, um, contradicting the effects of the curse. And I think what I'm asking, and you could argue, well, biologically, those who overcame COVID-19 and they are able to, I guess if this would even fall within the, the realm of, um, this would even fall within the realm of uh, microevolution to say that you get over a virus, but I don't know, Devin. What do you? What do you? What are your thoughts? So you guys just covered a bunch of information together that I have to <laughs> <laughs> stop doing it. Um, yes, I mean microevolution. Definitely, it can either be gradual or exponential in terms of the rates themselves. Um, 
I think you definitely brought up a sociological evolution and you also brought up a microbiological evolution. Um, yes, we are seeing a lot less stresses being upon each one of our, um, mainly to maintain homeostasis for our own systems. Um, a lot less stresses we're being exposed to and now we're falling victim as we're seeing to that, to the chronic illnesses, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, um, more cancer frequencies that we're seeing due to us being able to take such advantage of our modern healthcare systems and the uh, preventative uh, measures of the health. They're seeing a lot more uh, dependency um, upon uh, the healthcare and of uh, modern, like we see AC units, filters, everything protecting us from the external environment, which back then a lot of us would have died. Like a lot of people that exist nowadays would not have survived in the 1800s, a good chunk. I mean, just based on, you see the genetic um, disorders or whatnot, but we're seeing such compassion uh, to, for life, which is honestly God's intention for compassion of life. Um, but we're seeing the effects of that. And the main concern is based on those genetic, uh, passing on those kind times of genes that would not have survived. What will the future generations look like? And we're seeing that now with a lot more chronic conditions, people requiring glasses. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like just some genetics that would have probably debilitated people to not be able to reproduce, to not be able to do these things. So yes, we're seeing the consequences of our compassion. Though altruistic, we are seeing the negative sides that we're going to constantly have to battle. And that's why in CRISPR and genetic, uh, um, so pretty much what they're trying to create nowadays, you brought up cloning. Now I'm talking about designer babies uh, to where they're going to try and manipulate the human genome to be perfect, um, which is pretty much resistant to a lot of the um, pretty much chronic conditions. A lot of the conditions that we created technically for ourselves, we're seeing now the effects of the microevolution, us being so sheltered, us being so taken care of, that would we probably wouldn't have survived or okay, been so, able to accomplish. So I have a question for you on that. You can make the evolution you can make the case based on evolutionary theory that making what did you call them? The babies? Designer babies? Designer babies, yeah. You can make the case from an evolutionary from evolutionary theory that designer babies uh Evolution led to the event of designer babies. Therefore, there's no, uh, we shouldn't be worried about it. We shouldn't be uh, concerned about engaging in this activity. Rather, because evolutionary evolution has led to this point, let's just engage it because it's the next step in the evolutionary process. Hmm. Well, we saw that happen mainly with primate. Uh, we saw that primarily happening with uh, what we initially did was genetic modifications or GMOs we see nowadays of our foods, of our products. We 
naturally selected the best genes. That was the initial um, designer. Technically, we human by anthropogenic uh, influence designs specific uh, um, preferable produce, such as um, designing the seeds out of bananas um, to be not so large, watermelon to grow much more in size, uh, apples to be much more resistant to uh, pesticides and insects and stuff like that. So we saw nothing wrong with that. And now, now we take it though, the complex part is with human influence. Like now you're in the Christian aspect, are you creating something that God didn't design? Uh, God wouldn't have made otherwise. And Oh, that's such a tough topic because in my own purview, it's like, if I, if I was predestined to have Down syndrome or I was predestined to have congenital diabetes, diabetes type 1, um, and there is a way to solve it, where is the moral and Christian value then? Is it, would it be against the, and that's more of a question for you guys, would it be against um, our Christian morals to save uh, that life, to be able to allow them to survive and become better and have that genetic not only for themselves but their future generations if it's modified um in the proper way um that they will be able to be preventative of the chronic conditions that would either debilitate them or cause them eventual death preventable death right so i would tyler i I think this is a beyond interesting topic and uh tyler i definitely want to hear your opinion on this uh, but I would see um, what do you call a baby that's still in the womb? Is there a technical scientific term for that? Fetus. Sure. Yeah. I think if we can detect some kind of uh, deformity or disease that's going to occur at the fetal stage, um, I think treating that would be the, like the same as treating uh, a baby or a four-year-old child or a 10-year-old child. And I think that's consistent with the abortion argument as well, that we need to view a fetus and a child as the same because they are the same. They're just at a a different progression of life. They're still living organisms. Uh, And God, then you look at God and like, what is his desire? His desire is not for us to live lives full of suffering, but he wants us to live uh, life abundantly. And Jesus says that's why he came so that we can have life in abundance. And so I think about like my brother and uh, he has dyslexia and that is very much like a biological, um, I don't, it's not a disease. I don't know what to call it, but uh, it's something that, that can be treated. And you don't give him a pill or you don't inject something into him, but you still treat it. You can treat dyslexia. Um, and so, be, like, and his dyslexia has been treated, and he's now reading it at grade level, and he's making straight A's, which he was, he's a brilliant kid. He wasn't able to do that before we were taking care of his dyslexia. Now that it has been treated, he's making straight A's, and he's living to his fullest potential I would view it the same way as treating a fetus um, that 
that God desires abundant living. He does not desire suffering, that any uh, deformity or uh, disease that happens in the fetal stage is an effect of the fall. Um, it's not necessarily God's intended design. Um, like you look at John chapter nine and the man who was born blind, the Pharisees go and uh, they, they assume of the man, what sin did your parents commit that you have been born blind? And Jesus speaks to that and he's like, this, that's not what, what's going on here. Like your theological assumption is wrong. Um, and then Jesus gives the man sight. And so I don't think uh, God's intention is for us to live lives of suffering. And if that suffering can be prevented um, towards abundant living, I think we should. Now, I would be against designer babies, um, but I, th- I think we should treat suffering rather than uh, putting ourselves in the position of God and creating our own image if that makes sense. So Tyler, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I think kind of what I was getting at earlier with the whole microevolution stage and discussion was I'm well aware of the advancement of human society. Like Devin, you were talking about the 1800s. There were many people that today that wouldn't live back then. The idea of the psychological development and that, that accumulation of what in the scientific field would be considered relative truth that accumulation over thousands and thousands of what they would argue millions or billions of years. Uh, or I don't, I don't know when they would consider humanity, maybe millions, but, um, at least hundreds or a couple of 10,000 for the homo sapien is that that accumulation of knowledge that has produced us to this point that we are defeating the, so when it comes to the heart problems, to people now surviving heart attacks, to people to be able to survive strokes or, or these, these things that would for sure kill people, diseases or otherwise, that we are able to manufacture both diseases and otherwise. So that's, a, that's another hot topic that I, I'm well aware of. And my question was more prosed at what is a psychological, sociological, or in, in a biological sense, how are we advancing? Because... To what degree are we also killing ourselves with the chemicals that we are putting and that we have advanced, but are also putting into the mainstream? Is that intentional? It gets into all these conspiracy theories, and I'm not attempting to delve into that. What I am saying is that I am well aware of the the progression, and we could say that there's a biological and a psychological uh, analysis that we can trace from our advancement of this knowledge, and that should be celebrated. But at the same time, kind of a, from a more theological and to kind of add what Brady was talking about and to quote the great Jurassic Park movies um, is we're more obsessed with whether or not we can than whether or not we should could and should right and when it comes to and I, I think you have to take a case by case when it comes to cloning and things that are as a Christian to me they seem inherently uh, they sh- if they raise eyebrows to that degree then it should just be a no-no <laughs> I mean, the fact that there has to be discussion, we're more obsessed with whether or not can we clone? Can we do these things? Disregarding the moral implications, and we'll deal with the quote unquote absolute truths later after we have to deal with them, right? 
we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And that methodology, I think, is rather dangerous, but rather the inventive tools of healthcare are otherwise to advance humanity to survive and theologically defeat the effects of the curse, um, both goes to what humanity is capable of, but also our limitation that, yes, we still all die and the, we're still trying to find that immortality potion, right? The, um, and you could even argue from an, a microevolution standpoint, the advancement and accumulation of that knowledge is to advance our species to ensure um, the art, for, for instance, like Elon Musk, if the idea of terraforming Mars would be so that we could live there as a species in advance and be an interplanetary species and that we can expand our horizons to ensure our um, survival as a species and that that could be the microevolution and the insistence on our survival to protect us from ourselves, which bleeds into the psychological as to what, what are we doing subconsciously to ensure our survival as a species? And that's kind of what I was getting at and hinting, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud, and this is all coming to me at once, but um, that's kind of what I was getting at to kind of bleed both the scientific and the theological. I think God will place limits on um, what we will and can do. Um, but I think when it comes to, and I'll end with this, but when it comes to cloning and other such things of uh, the designer babies, um, what I would view as grotesquely, that's not a word, uh, as grotesque. Um, I think that that is immoral and that there are certain things that we need to be satisfied by the fact that certain things we should not have to strive for, for the um, survival of our species, if you want to take it in a scientific palatable way. Yeah, and I want to not amend, but maybe qualify something I said earlier too. I think God's design and his intention is abundant living. Um, but that is not to say that suffering is meaningless. And I think mm -hmm. that God moves and he works in suffering. And I think uh, he purposes suffering for our ultimate benefit, uh, which would be complete reliance and dependence on him as creator God. Um, and so I think while it is our mission as participants in the kingdom of God to alleviate suffering where we can, um, suffering has deep meaning. And that goes into the last episode that we recorded we need to have a theology of martyrdom. Uh, we need to have a theology of suffering. The cross is suffering. And uh, when Jesus told his disciples to follow after him and pick up their cross, the cross had no other definition than suffering. Um, and so, you know, uh, that can get into a, a whole big argument. And on whether or not like God gives people cancer or does uh, things like that. Um, I'm not making a case one way or the other on that. I'm, that's beyond me. Um, I'm not going to say that God, God can't. I'm not going to say that he does either. Um, but what I do know is that, that God 
when we experience suffering, God intends us to walk away with a greater reliance and dependence on him. And I think that's the, that's the book of Job. Uh, and there's a reason that we have the book of Job is so that we can uh, experience and develop a theology of suffering. So, well, and maybe we can reserve Devin for another episode. I think that that would be great to hear his opinion on, and we don't have to delve into it, but um, theology and uh, the scientific field's response to suffering and how we each build theodicies, whether we believe in God or not, and our response to suffering, whether it's amoral or otherwise, um, especially in the philosophical world view today that the suffering even within itself is amoral. So um, I would love to hear, and we could definitely reserve Devin for another time to, uh, I guess, expound on that. So, Devin, uh, you are the guest. I guess uh, we're nearly just a couple seconds away from the two-hour mark. Uh, we will reserve last comments uh, for you. So why don't you wrap us up with anything that you'd like to? Sure. Um, so to summarize everything we just said, uh, science <laughs> and religion uh, are intrinsically on one another. And to quote Albert Einstein, a pretty good, and yeah, he actually believed in theology and not. Uh, he said, uh, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. Okay. He actually used the word lame? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said that was lame. I mean, he was, he was uh, around in like the like early or late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, so yeah, lame was... That is totally unchill, my dude. Like, you know, <laughs> that was a, a, didn't talk like that, right? or not. It's still, still pretty funny. Yeah, lame. <laughs> Tyler, you want to pray for us, and and we'll close. Yeah, of course. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the gift of rationality and our response to you and to your truth that you have revealed through Scripture and through discussion and through the relationship that is revealed um, via your Trinity and how we are to replicate that in our relationship with our three brothers here, um, uh, that we are able to participate in one another and grow and develop um, wonderfully and beautifully and that we are able to wrestle with the world that is created and, um, honor you and glorify you in the process of doing so. We love you and it is um, by your grace and through your son and by the, the spirit that we're able to say this. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope to see you at our next episode.